Are you sheltering in place, isolated, feeling alone? <coughs> well, then you're just like us. Hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the quarantined hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Suckatash Shut-In, the Soundcast stimulus package featuring snippets from comedy... Soundcasts. And now, here's your host for this episode, Mark Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Mark Hi, I am Mark Hershaw. Thanks for dropping by. And thank you, Bill Haywatt, our fabulous booth announcer for all nine and a half years of this soundcast that you have been with us and on it so far. In honor of the pandemic, well, that doesn't sound quite right. Because of the pandemic, we've repositioned ourselves as Succotash Shut-In, the Soundcast Stimulus Package. Mostly because we saw that the ratings for soundcasts, or podcasts, as older folks refer to them, has dropped precipitously. So we're cranking these things out once a week now, regular as a guy with a double espresso and a pint of prune juice. If you missed last week, episode 216, you didn't get to hear my co-host Tyson Saner share clips from a trio of shows, including Trashy Trashy, Deluxe Edition, yet another pop culture podcast, and I don't want to talk about Fight Club anymore. You can still grab it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine soundcasts appear, including our home site, SuckatashShow.com. This show is not all about comedy soundcast clips, no sir, or ma'am. We sometimes do our own thing, like the Sleeve Talkers pilot episode we featured a couple of months ago. And we like to talk to soundcasters and comedians and comedian soundcasters and other showbiz folk. Hell, I'll talk to a carny if the chance presents itself. But today, for Epi 217, we've got a very special guest. He's a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, a father, a son, a husband, maybe a member of the Illuminati, but more than anything, he is a soundcaster too, just like me, and probably just like you. Mike Berbiglia joins us today. We're going to talk about his latest soundcast. He's had a few. And working it out with Mike Berbiglia has been getting some rave notices from me, for one, as I reviewed a recent episode for This Week in Comedy Podcasts on Vulture.com. The premise of the show is that he has interesting, creative guests on, and he talks to them about their lives, but also what it is they're working on right now. Why don't I play a little taste of that episode I reviewed first, then we'll jump into my chat with Mike. Here he's talking with guest Roy Woods Jr., a funny comedian you may recognize from The Daily Show and from a ways back, Last Comic Standing. Mike wants to hear Roy doing stories about his own life, which Roy is not entirely comfortable with, but he is willing to give it a shot. Maybe I'm overstepping, but I really do feel like you should write a solo show off Broadway about your life. Like, I does that interest you? Yeah, it does. It's the problem. I don't know if you ever noticed with my stand-up. I don't talk about myself. Yeah, I know, man. I talk about the world. I talk about my thoughts and analysis on the world because. I've just I've always felt like my stuff was too weird or too hard to make funny in a oh. traditional setup setup punchline. Yeah. And really diving into the deeper parts of my life would require a comfort that I didn't possess at the time. Yeah. Whereas now I'm like, all right, maybe I could get a little deeper and tell that story and really go into like there's the time like when I did get arrested and I was getting transferred from jail to court for the 
for the bail hearing and how the U.S. Marshal called me nigger for 30 oh minutes gosh. straight Jesus. from the from the jail all the way to the courthouse and like and then Are when I serious? and then when I got bail and got free and I got free um he called me a lucky nigger <laughs> like oh my gosh. It was just looking. and then it's Tallahassee so I end up working at Golden Corral so a year and a half later oh my god guess who's one of my customers at my table that guy fucking US marshals <laughs> and, and the part here's the part like of course, it's heinous, it's racism, whatever. The part that hurt the most was that he didn't remember me. Oh, that's devastating. Which means you call everybody yes. nigger. I that's thought right. I was special, yeah. bitch. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> you know, so... You thought I, it was a moment in his life yeah. where he crossed the line. It's like, you just call everybody nigger? Like, so there's, oh. there's an arc in that story. Yeah. Just in how, you know... Just how dis- racism is just such a way of life for so many people that it's like saying hello to a stranger. That's right. You know, but there ain't a lot of punchlines in that. Then to explore that story based on the current audience's mindset, I have to I have to explain why I got arrested. I explain what I got arrested for. Then I have to have a moment of of atonement within my joke to go. I yeah. shouldn't have been stealing. <laughs> I shouldn't have been. So now, so yeah. now. We're 15 minutes on some sidetrack shit no. before I can get to the transport no. with the U.S. Marshal. That's Richard, right. That's why you need me to produce the show. Richard Pryor <laughs> never went, no, I shouldn't have been smoking cocaine. But anyway, I was smoking cocaine. He just delivered it so matter-of-factly because people are on board with him because people knew who he was. And so when you start revealing layers of yourself, yeah, that's right. I think it, it's, it only works if people already know you, Chris Rock, like I don't think Chris Rock gets enough credit for the back half of Tambourine and how emotionally naked Unbelievable. he was on that stage. Unbelievable, man. beautiful. He's never done that. He's never done that before. He gets credit from from people who I respect, though. I think that I think that there's a certain group of people, you and me included, who get that Tambourine is one of the best comedy specials in the last two decades. It's downright. It's it's downright like a total shift, and yeah. it's beautiful because he he starts he starts one way, you know, yeah. and it's a traditional Chris Rock special, and we love him. Yeah, yeah. And then he just goes, "Oh yeah, porn addiction, divorce, and here what else I'm going dealing with." I right know. Now. So that's a slice from Mike Birbiglia's "Working It Out" soundcast, and we're going to chat with him mouth to ear to mouth to ear again right after this quick word from our sponsor, Henderson's Summerstock Slacks. Hello, friends, and welcome to the lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer. Bill Haywatt here to tell you about the latest invention from Henderson's Pants, Summer Stock Slacks. Just like those amazing Broadway shows that leave the great white way to hit the road and make money off the rubes in the flyover states, Henderson's Summer Stock Pants look great on the outside, but they're really cheaply made, using the flimsiest of materials and 
and very little attention to detail. They look great on the outside from 20 feet away. Oh, but trust me, these suckers barely hold up past the first wearing. And by first wearing, I'm talking about the try-on in the dressing room. And once you wash them for the first time, you can just plan on throwing your brand new Henderson Summerstock slacks away. Ultra cheap to make, you'd think Henderson's would pass the savings on to you. But oh my goodness, no, these handsome but useless trousers are just as expensive as our top-of-the-line dress slacks. Originally designed for out-of-towners, yokels, and complete schlemiels, Henderson Summerstock slacks are available in little tourist shops wherever trinkets and tchotchkes are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of ephemeral garments and transitory togs since 1354. And now back to the unique permanence of Succotash. Anyway, it's great to, uh, to talk to you. I've been a fan for a long time. And uh, I think we've probably featured your appearance on a couple of different podcasts on my show on Succotash. Oh, thanks. Succotash, uh, what we do is I actually started this show back in 2011 as a way to promote comedy podcasts. We actually call them soundcasts because uh, we don't think Apple should be getting all that extra Attention. Oh, I, I, okay, now I get it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I started back in 2011 because nobody kind of knew what podcasts were. They were kind of dying on the vine. and Sure. I like to think we were successful because uh, now people know what they are. Apparently, apparently the word is getting around. <laughs> well, you know, that was a big thing when, uh, when they launched Serial. Yes. Um, Ira Glasses, and I don't remember what year that was exactly, but... One of their big aims with Serial was to explain to people what podcasts are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, my, my mother has yet to hear my, one of my shows. Been wow. Doing this, been doing this for almost a decade. She goes, I don't know how to get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my folks are the same. I think the only way my mom heard, she heard part of the Roy Wood episode because she was in the car with my brother and he played it for her. And she liked it. So that's good. Yeah, that's that's a plus. That's a plus. But uh, yeah, let's I mean, let's start talking about your newest show. You're no stranger to podcasting, of course, but uh, working it out. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating show. And I've now you know, I've now reviewed it twice for Vulture because I think they're cool shows. Oh, thanks. But uh, how'd the concept come up? And why don't you just explain a little bit about what the, the format's like? It started in uh, in March when I was sort of pulled off the road from, <laughs> from the the world circumstance and uh, from being a touring comedian. And actually, Roy Wood Jr. and I were on the phone. We were like, we, we got to do something to support these comedy club staffs. Because honestly, like, I feel like comedians uh, can make it a few weeks without working, maybe a few months. But the staffs are pretty, a lot of them are week to week. And yeah. so we were like, let's come up with something. And we came up with this idea, which is Instagram lives called tip your weight staff. And it was really fun. You know, we did about 30 of them. We helped raise about $600,000 for comedy clubs across the country. It's still going tip your to support different GoFundMes. And then at a certain point, it just became a lot of the feedback was, um, I can't w watch this at four o'clock on Tuesday, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. uh, where can I find these, you know? And of course 
Instagram, like every platform, sort of has all the hoops to jump through to see what you record on there. And a lot of people don't have Instagram. So I was like, well, what's the most open source format that I can do this thing in? And so I just sort of rebranded it as uh, working it out. And and I added a few elements. So it's like working out new material, but then it's also like I call it a slow round where we ask mm. questions like, what's the smell you remember from childhood or a memory on a loop? And that's really, uh, it's a few things. One is it sort of shows off the creative process of like, where do ideas come from? Which is an idea mm. as a writer you get all the time. And, and then I, you, cause I think what happens is people start to think of their smell or their memory on a loop and they go, Oh yeah. Oh, okay. That's how, that's yeah. how comedy ideas evolve from your life. And, uh, and then we give a, a, it's working out for a cause. We give to a nonprofit each episode. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point, thousands of dollars, hopefully by the end of a, a, a big, end of the year, a big, a big, uh, a big check to a lot of different organizations. And we try to shine a light on what they're doing, you know? And so like Roy Wood Jr., for example, that was like a literacy organization that he's volunteered for before, which I love that side of it because mm -hmm. I feel like with nonprofits so often you go like, you write a check for the Red Cross and we, we know they're doing a good job, but we're also kind of like, do we know anyone who works for the Red Cross? You know what I mean? Like, right. like I, do, I don't personally, I think they're doing a great job, but like, but so to hear Roy Woods say, like, I've worked with this literacy organization, they're doing a great job. It, I think it's meaningful. And especially now, geez, I mean, we're in just such strange times and I feel like it has to be, whatever we're doing has to have some uh, component of it that's that's for the greater good. I think that's great. And it's uh, it's a nice switch up from what's become kind of the corporate sponsors of podcasts. Sure. You know? Not to dig any of them. And, and glad podcasts are finally making some money. But uh, I think it's a great way to give back like you were talking about, uh, particularly when the person that's on has that personal connection. You really feel like, well, he's helping out. I should feel, I should help out. Yeah, I think that's right. Podcasting is just one of the many things you do. One of the things that I, I, I was aware of you, but when I really kind of said I got to find out more about this guy was when Mark Marin had his 500th episode and he had you <laughs> interview him. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 200th episode, actually. Something like that. It was Believe it or not, I think now he's on like 800 or 1,000. Oh, he's over 1,000. He's probably... It's wild. Yeah. It's Yeah. And he's had a president of the United States on. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, it's where I kind of... I'd been hearing about you. I'd caught some of your stuff. But it was something fascinating about him wanting you to interview him, which was really interesting. Um, and uh, one of the... Your um, Don't Think Twice movie about improv yeah uh, really and, and by the me. way mark mark is in in my first feature film sleepwalk with me oh mark he is yeah mark plays like a veteran comedian uh, and he's very good yeah yeah he's and he's i mean he's between his own tv show you know marin and uh glow he's actually uh, gotten some chops i mean when i saw oh, him yeah. in, when i saw him in joker it was like oh this guy's arrived yeah, he's a big, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a busy actor. But your improv movie really touched me because I'd been doing, I've been doing improv since like 1983. Uh, wow. But it was the first time I could actually show my wife 
some semblance of what improv was like from <laughs> the backstage perspective. Because sure. I, you know, I've been doing it for twenty years. When I met her, and she would come to these shows, and she was didn't know anybody, and she'd be in the audience. She goes, "I don't understand. Who, who are these people? You act like they're you've known them for years." <laughs> I go, "I have known them for years. I've just never yeah, introduced yeah. them to you." Um, but I have to assume, and I just don't know this much, much about your background, that you have improv in your roots. Yeah. I mean, I was actually, I did, uh, the other day I did, I moderated a Q and a Q&A for freestyle love Supreme at, at Lincoln center and freestyle love Supreme is an improvised hip hop show. Yeah. Like I actually, it's like, I actually know one of the producers. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. So you know all about it. And, yeah. you know, and, uh, Anthony, Anthony Veneziale. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, and and he's heavily, he's heavily featured in the in the Freestyle Love Supreme documentary too, right? Yes, yeah. Because that that's what we were talking about was this this documentary. And I actually said, "Don't think twice." In some ways, is the narrative uh, <laughs> version that predates this documentary about Freestyle Love Supreme because it's so much about. Yeah. Don't think twice is all about how it's a group of best friends, and then someone sort of makes it onto a Saturday Night Live type show, and then everyone else doesn't. And it's all about how sort of life isn't fair in this very linear way. Yeah. And Freestyle Love Supreme is the same thing. I mean, it's like, if you watch the documentary, which is on Hulu, it's really good. I watched it a couple of times now. You really get the sense of like, you know, there's Lynn and, you know, Lynn's in the stratosphere. And, and then there's other people who've, who are really talented and they've chosen to, raise the family you know somewhere else and you know and, or this person's gone off and become an actor and this person's done this and it's just an interesting sort of like meditation on how these groups don't last forever and of course like my my version of that was that i was in a college improv group the georgetown players which and we were doing this is late 90s we were doing like long form chicago style improv and we I remember at the time we we had a workshop my freshman year with Sharna Halpern from IO mm -hmm. in Chicago and and it was a you know it was before it was late 90s so it was like before UCB had its own yeah. theater and it was long form improv was this sort of I mean now it's so common but at the time it was sort of like no no you do games improv right uh you do whose line is it anyway sort of games improv and then and then long-form improv was sort of avant-garde. I mean, really, it was sort of mm -hmm. like, oh, you're doing long-form? You know, <laughs> like, it's such a big deal. And uh, and I loved it. And it was, like, honestly, I talk about it in my podcast, like, working it out, how, like, I one of my slow-round questions is, like, what's a group that you were excluded from your whole life? And the other day, Ronnie Chang said, uh, every group my whole life until comedy, uh, essentially. Oh, and I, I totally related to that because before improv, I always felt a little bit on the outside of groups. But then, man, when I found improv, I was like, this is, this is my family. And, yeah. and that's why in the, in the, you know, in the, in the movie, the improv group is called the commune. And it's, it's very <laughs> much about like groups and family and, and all that stuff. And, and uh, we moved to New York. We had a group called Little Man. Nick Kroll was in it, oh, sure. who's done extraordinarily well and uh, super talented. Um, my friend Brian, Conrad, Ed, Chris. And, and ultimately, we've all sort of gone our separate ways. And But we had a blast 
doing shows at UCB and uh, the Duplex and all those sort of like cabaret venues in the early 2000s. And you never kind of lose that connection, right? I mean, I was I cut my teeth and I was running a comedy club in Seattle in the early 80s. Wow. And um, the uh, local theater sports group, they just started from, you know, they brought it down from Canada. Right. Keith Johnstone, the guy who wrote the Impro. Of course. Impro. Yeah. Yeah. And so they started this group uh, in Seattle and they got thrown out of their theater because there was a play going in. They came knocking on my door at the Comedy Underground and said, hey, do you you have Monday nights dark? Can we go do it? And I said, yeah, you can do it, but you got to teach me how to do improv. So that's that's how I got in. And I got to play with Ryan Stiles from who's. Oh, yes, that's right. He came down with the Vancouver team to play us on stage. And then I went down to San Francisco and I ended up in the house improv group at the punchline in San Francisco, which I ended up. Wow. directing. And we had uh, Greg Proops and Michael McShane were in our group. What they, year? This was 86. No kidding. Cause my director of the new one, Seth Barish, who I've collaborated on a sure. ton of things with, he used to play piano when they did improv sets at the comedy store in the early eighties. Oh, no kidding. Okay. And that was like the Robin Williams would pop in and you know, it was, it was, we we did like a Saturday night live format, right? We had a stand up, do like 10 minutes and then we do improv and they'd play with us. And Robin was there like every third week. He would be in there. So, I mean, he was one of, I'd say like the history, one of history's greatest improvisers. Him, Jonathan Winters, yeah, um, others, you know, the the legends. But uh, the other thing I found about improv, and and you probably echo this because of all the stuff you do, is that it became this amazing lubricant for all the other performance and writing and other things I've done. Since yes, I, yes, I, that, and ultimately that's why I think I made the movie. Yeah, because I um, I wrote some movies for the Hallmark Channel. And uh, I literally pitched one of them to a producer while another one was being edited. He goes, hey, you got anything for Halloween? The channel's calling. And I pitched him this movie that I had, I just completely made up on the spot. And it was all literally just, he was my audience and I just watched him. Yeah. You know, if I, if it started to go kind of south, I'd change directions. And that got made into a movie. So improv is always so fascinating. I, I think that what I always tell improvisers, because the improv and stand-up have this odd rivalry, right? Oh, Which yeah. has no no basis in anything, in my opinion. You know, <laughs> there's no reason that they, they should dislike each other, feel competitive around each other. But because I'm both, I'm an improviser and a stand-up. I love both. They're yeah. they, they uh, you know they have a lot of val- both have a lot of value. And what I always tell my improviser friends is. You can do stand up too, you know. You can, but but the audience is your scene partner, yes. Which is a, a little bit of a trick that I, I learned from an interview that Seinfeld did in the early '80s, where I listened to it on CD on comedy with Jerry Seinfeld, where he says that you know the audience, it's like acting. The audience is your scene partner, and and that's and and is, you know, and so in a lot of ways. That when you watch those old Robin Williams specials, it's like watching him improvise with the audience oh yeah yeah i mean uh, where i live here in northern california he you know i he lived 15 minutes away and there's a little theater here that does comedy every tuesday night and he would show up if he was in town 
and you could just watch him work. And I got to do improv with him on that stage up till like six months before he died. Mm, wow. Um, but watching him do that was just amazing because he would just, first of all, he'd sit in the back and he yeah. would watch the audience yeah, and kind of get the vibe. And then when he hit the stage, he knew where to go because he was watching who was talking more, who mm, was kind of not yeah. talking. And so he'd go after those people. Very educational. To yes. Yes. Um, so you've gotten into movies and TV. Oh, this was the other thing I want to talk about was there's something to me that's so wonderful to watch people of comedy sensibility get cast in things that are not overtly comedic. And when you did your work in um, Orange is the New Black. Oh, yeah. It was just such a great, refreshing take on what could have been kind of a miserable role. I think. <laughs> yeah. Danny Pearson. Yeah. And it was just this sort of, it was interesting because it was almost like the care, the way you were playing the character was he was almost kind of seemed delighted by the fact he was doing this job. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of his character as being a little bit like George W. Bush, where, <laughs> where he, he, uh, he was this corporate executive who got the job because his dad had the job before him and, and yeah. he, he meant well, but he was sort of doing an evil thing. And, uh, you know, so I, I always thought George W. Bush was sort of a good model for that. Well, that's cool. So, so a role like that, were you in auditions for that or did they, did they craft that for you? Cause it, just... it was a, I think it was a little bit of both. I think mm -hmm. it was where they, I wasn't auditioning for a lot of things at the time and they said, Hey, would, what would you think about doing this? And, and, uh, and, and I think I said, uh, yeah, that seems good. And they said, you'd have to read for it, but I, I read for it and it just felt, uh, very natural. And then I think what they did is ultimately the writer sort of wrote towards the character as the seasons went on. So it was a, a little bit of a sort of a back and forth, which is, mm. which was fun. And then, and then Nick Sandow, who played Caputo, who played opposite me in most of my scenes, yeah. he, he and I live in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn, so she, we'd share rides. Oh, no kidding. We'd become pretty good friends over the years. And he gave, he gave me a lot of notes on the Don't Think Twice script, actually. So oh, really? that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a really special show to me, Orange is the New Black. Oh, that's cool. So and, then, and then Natasha Leone and I actually met through the show and then we produced Jacqueline Novak's solo show off Broadway together oh, this year. I didn't yeah. Know that. <laughs> yeah. So there's something there too. So yeah, it's uh and then I, of course I was listening to you uh, and mentioned in my review about Roy Wood, the idea of trying to get him to do a one man show that you would like. To oh, produce. I know that's what I want to do. I mean, Roy is just a, such a star. I mean, he yeah. has so much, he has so much wisdom and he's such a fountain of comedy and intelligence. And it's like, it, I, I just want to see it all bottled up in a 90-minute personal screen, you know? Yeah, like you pointed out in, in your show with him, is he, he, he never talks about himself in his act. Yeah. He's one of those comics that is, is always observational. Yep. And so that's very interesting because his stories he was relating on your show, and I'll have a link on the blog piece that goes with my show to that episode so people can catch it. Um, and I did feature a clip from it actually a couple of episodes ago. Um, but it's fascinating to hear 
what his life is like or was like or completely I guess still like right um, well yeah he started in birmingham and uh he he was arrested for stealing jeans and all this stuff and i i just thought thematically in terms of like what that kind of what that show would be about is he's now a dad and you know he's it's all in some ways you know it's a show he hasn't written yet but but about redemption and about forgiveness and how do you do forgiving yourself and then how to teach your son, you know, uh, how to not make those mistakes or if you make those mistakes, learn from those mistakes and all that kind of thing. Uh, it seems that like lessons are an important part of the things you're, you're part of. I mean, if I, when I watch your stand up specials, your stories tend to go into these things where it's usually you learning a lesson or, yeah, uh, you know. it's hard with autobiographical work to have other people learn lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so that's when my wife realized that I was right. <laughs> I, I've seen comics try to force it down people's throats. Before. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get started? What was kind of the, for your entree into to um, into comedy or any sort of performance medium. So sort of a one-two punch of seeing Stephen Wright do stand-up live when I was 16. And that was when I started writing down jokes. I saw him at the Cape Cod Melody Tent. My brother Joe took me. And then two years later, as a freshman in college, I auditioned for the improv group. And then that became my whole life. So it was like I was working the door at the Washington, D.C. Improv Stand-Up Club. And I was doing improv and it was my whole life. I mean, it's just all consuming. And then, you know, here we are 22 years later. It's it's everything. Yeah. I, a funny Stephen Wright story. The, when I was running the club in Seattle, he was headlining one week and he uh, he said, hey, would you mind watching me do my show? I go, well, yeah, I watch your set every night. He goes, no, I mean, for some reason, I don't seem to be connecting with the audience. And could you just watch me? I went, yeah, okay. Huh. So I'm watching his show and, um, you know, he kind of goes into this zone when he's performing where he's looking towards the audience, but not looking yeah. at the audience. Yes. Yes. And I said, well, you know, when I talked to him after I said, well, you you move your body and your head like you're addressing the audience, but your eyes don't really connect with anybody. <laughs> and you're like a, yeah. you're like a submarine periscope kind of swiveling back and forth. And he kind of went, uh, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And then he never changed his performance style after That's that. That's fascinating. But it was interesting that he wanted someone to give him some feedback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is fascinating because that is what he does. He looks in the direction of the audience but not at the audience. Yeah, yeah. Which, was... As opposed to Mitch Hedberg who sort of like looks at the floor. Uh-huh. Yep, exactly. Or, it's it's yeah. fascinating to me. I mean, having worked in comedy as a as a manager – uh, comedy club manager. And then I've never actually done stand. I've done stand up a little bit, but it's mostly improv. Yeah. Um, uh, although the funniest time was, um, I was working on this screenplay with uh, Dana Carvey and, uh, we, uh, he had to play uh, in Vegas one weekend. He goes, well, why don't you come with me? I'll get you a room and we can keep working there. So I go, okay. So we fly to Vegas. He's working at the Mirage. And, uh, he goes, I got to go down and talk to the stage manager. So I hang out with him. We go down there, and uh, he says to the manager, he says, who's my opening act? And the manager says, what do you mean? He says, well, the hotel when they booked me said, you guys have a local, somebody from Vegas. 
No, there's no no opener. <laughs> that's they, funny. They said they said you were going to bring your own opener. No, that's funny. And both he and Dana both look at me, and and Dana goes, "Oh yeah, Mark can do it." <laughs> so, so he and I like write seven minutes of just horrific topical material. Sure. For the rest of the afternoon, and I open for him for three nights. At the at the Mirage. That is a really cool story. In Vegas, in front of thirteen hundred people. Wow! And it was all improv that did it. I again, I've tried to tell so many people how, and I t- actually teach improv in my day job now to people who work there. Wow! Um, but the idea that you go out on stage and you you own the stage, and it you know somebody who has stage fright or someone in the audience doesn't understand the idea of ownership of stage. Mm-hmm. You know, you go out there and you own it. And based on your confidence level, the audience buys it. Yeah. Or doesn't. Or doesn't. Or doesn't. Or doesn't, <laughs> depending how, how you carry it off. But it's just, it's fascinating, that idea of getting into it through stand-up and, like I said, the improv being the thing. So you got started that way. And then what led you into, into well, to me, it seems obvious what leads you to these things. But for the, for the listener's sake, how do you then segue into television and movies and these other these other interests that you have? Well, I had, when I was studying uh, Georgetown, I was studying screenwriting. And as a matter of fact, I was in like a really extraordinary class of screenwriters. There was Jonah, Jonah Nolan, mm-hmm. uh, who co-wrote the Batman movies mm-hmm. and, and the Prestige, uh, Jordan Goldberg, who went on to be a very successful producer, Jordan Nardino, um, who's a TV writer, like a lot of working writers. And uh, and so I just thought I was going to be a screenwriter out of school. Mm-hmm. And then I, it got to be towards graduation and I looked around and at the listings for jobs and realized, oh, they don't, uh, that's not a job. <laughs> And then I was working the door at the Washington DC improv and opening for people like Jake Johansson and Brian Regan when they would come through town. And I just started looking at people's receipts of how much they were making, you know, what the openers make, you know, opener makes 300 bucks a week. The middle act makes 500 bucks Mm -hmm. a week, whatever it is. And I just thought, well, I mean, I could, I could be an opening act. I could just drive around the country and call myself and say, I'm showing up and, it's literally what I did. And that's what my first movie sleepwalk with me is really based on that experience. And my first book, uh, is based on that experience, just driving around the country uh, and, and sort of figuring it out. And then in terms of how that became TV, it's like at a certain point, uh, I got on Letterman, I got on comedy central, I got a comedy central special, um, because, you know, they have to fill those slots. Yeah, <laughs> someone know? has to do it. Someone has to do those. And, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I was doing well with audiences. You know, like I'd spent so many hours in comedy clubs. And so I, I, I got the hang of it. And, uh, and then from there, it was sort of like, okay, well, this, this can circle back to film, which I had studied. I'd studied very seriously how to write screenplays. Mm. And so uh, when I got the opportunity... Sleepwalk with me was an off-Broadway show, and then Nathan Lane presented it, which was a huge coup, and it was a very lucky thing for me, and very generous of him. He did it for free, for nothing, and just to be supportive. And and then, um, you know, producers came around and said, "Well, what if this was a movie?" And I said, "I'd love it to be a movie." And then uh, I, I I sort of held out 
<laughs> much like Sylvester Stallone with Rocky, I held out to uh, write write it myself and direct it myself. Smart move. Yeah, and then here I yeah here I am. I made uh, directed a a pair of movies and uh, some specials. Of, you know, about four specials at this point, I think. Well, that's great. So you're working on the the podcast now. As as I mean, I went. I had actually stepped away from my podcast for a while. I was just producing, and I had my associate producer as the host. And then when the pandemic shut down, I said, I want to get back into this now because yeah. it's something to be doing. Um, and uh, it's uh, it gives you time to focus. And at the same time, it kind of steals focus because you're so amorphous. I love the uh, thing Roy Wood said in the interview with you where he said, every day feels like either Tuesday or Thursday. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that a great line? Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. And it's so real. Well, the only reason why I was willing to do the podcast was was that it it, it feeds into my writing process mm. because I, I for a period of time I did a, a podcast called The Old Ones where I, I go and I talk about someone's old comedy special. I talk to Hasan Minaj about his special, or you know John Mulaney about his special, or we talk about one of my specials. And then what I realized when I was producing it is, oh, my gosh, this is so much work. It's taking away from me writing. Mm -hmm. And so with this show, working it out, I'm literally writing for the show. And that writing is going to end up being in my next special. And so it, it's sort of uh, it's oddly productive for a podcast. That's great. That's yeah. Great, yeah, that's a great way to do it. Exactly. And then with someone like David Sedaris, you know, it's like, it's sort of an excuse to like ask David Sedaris or Hannah Gadsby for like tips on like, what do you think of this bit? You know, and they throw you a tag and you're like, oh, I can keep that. Fantastic. That's great. That's yeah. fantastic. Uh, what else do you have kind of slated to do once things in, in air quotes go back to normal? I'm trying currently, this isn't for back to normal, but it's sort of for more of a of an inside is I, I'm sort of trying to crack virtual. Like I'm doing mm. my first virtual show on the 25th. It, I think it, it gets announced soon. And, uh, I'm, I'm really experimenting with like a multicam format with green screens and all these things. Like I'm trying to treat it like cinema and, and see what I can do. I mean, at first I was like, I'm never going to do a virtual show. <laughs> and then I started to hear about like people doing virtual shows and, Sometimes people in the audience are people, you know, my friend Sam Morrill was saying, look, there's a guy in the audience in one of his virtual shows that had brain cancer. There's people who can't leave the house because they can't walk or whatever the thing is. And you go like, oh, that is a complete and total reason to crack this virtual format. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Maria Bamford was doing these uh, Zoom rehearsals from her yeah. living room, which was fascinating. And it was like limited to 100 people. And it was, uh, you know, she would turn on the mics at the end and talk to people. It was cool. I watched it a couple of times. Very interesting. Yeah, she's brilliant. I mean, there's she's actually on an up, upcoming episode of Working It Out. And oh, good. No one, no one makes me laugh harder than Maria. She's great. I was just watching her stuff she was doing for Arrested Development again recently and just just so funny. Yeah, she's just something crazy. else. Well, Mike, I want to thank you. I know it's uh, it's still a busy time for, for all of us, but you're, you're busier than most. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out to chat with me. Thank and, you. Uh, welcome to uh, to the Succotash Shut in the. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Mark. The sound, sound the Soundcast stimulus package. 
as I like to call <laughs> and uh, best of luck and I look forward to seeing you whatever whatever you come out with next all right thanks mark appreciate it this episode of Succotash is sponsored in part by TrumpPoetry.com, a chronological ode to a fake muse. Enjoy a rhyming spin on the news of the day every day, as well as over 500 archived daily verses thoroughly covering the White House, America, and the world with a sticky caramel coating that's impossible to remove. That's TrumPoetry.com. Everything you need to know in rhyming couplets. TrumpPoetry.com. Big thanks to Mike Brabiglia for taking the time out of his busy day to chat for a bit. You can catch his soundcast, Working It Out with Mike Brabiglia, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or right from his own home site if you like, burbigs.com. That's B-I-R-B-I-G-S.com. If you liked what you heard here today, don't be afraid to stop by Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show, that Succotash show. Tyson Saner will be back next week with a Passolo Comedy Soundcast Clips. And in the meantime, stay safe, breathe shallow, and remember to please pass the Succotash. You've been listening to Succotash Shut In, the Soundcast Stimulus Package, with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants, TrumpPoetry.com, and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on iHeartRadio, on YouTube, on SoundCloud, on the <laughs> laughable app, and tattooed on your mother's rear end. You can hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com. Or call into the Succotash Skype line at our toll call number 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcast directly to us using our direct upload link at hightail.com slash u slash Succotash. Production of Succotash is overseen by Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, the home of the hit. Our hosts are Mark Hershon and Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is still Kenny Durgis. And until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please wash your hands and pass the Succotash. Goodbye. This has been a Succotash Patch production.